Welcome to another episode of Money You Should Ask. I'm your host, Bob Wheeler, and in this episode, we're going to explore, question, examine, converse, dig deep, expose, laugh, and cry about the money beliefs, money blocks, and life challenges of our next guest. Turn up the volume, listen, learn, and laugh. Good news, bad news. Bad news first. Growth comes from learning, which is a lifelong endeavor. Good news. Growth comes from learning, which is a lifelong endeavor. At the Money Nerve Academy, we hold space to explore, navigate, discover, and heal your relationship with money. With our online course, Mastering the Emotions of Money, you can get in touch with your fears, blocks, and beliefs around money so that you can become more aware of your current financial story. By understanding why you do what you do with your money, you can create a different ending to your financial story than the one currently taking place. Check out themoneynerve.com and start mastering your emotions of money. I am super delighted today. We have an amazing guest and this gentleman, Guy Walker, welcome Guy. Thank you. Is the president of Wealth Management Strategies, a financial advisory firm. He is passionate about life and people and he views the work that he does as part of his life's purpose to guide people through a process which may help them gain clarity as to their life purpose. One of the most fulfilling things we can do. His object is to bring greater meaning to the lives of others, thereby bringing greater meaning to his own life. He is the current president of Endowment for Youth Committee, which is an organization that provides leadership in the development of programs and policies which lead to the improved self-esteem and empowerment of young African-Americans. Guy joined the EYC the EYC board because he believes that by advocating for African-American boys, he is helping to unleash the potential of a nation. And we'll talk a little bit more about that because it sounds amazing. Um, You know, Guy, the first thing, and I know we talked a little bit off camera. uh, One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is you you, you, you grew up in Compton. And for a lot of people like myself who did not know that Compton was originally an all white community, that was one of the first communities in Los Angeles to allow uh, black home ownership and your parents moved you there. And which sounds pretty amazing that your parents like took that step because it might have actually been a scary step to move into a neighborhood where it was potentially not so welcoming initially. Can you tell me a little bit about that and, and that journey and your parents foresight? Sure. Great question. Um, and, and you're not alone. A, a lot of people have uh, misconceptions or misperceptions about Compton and its history. Uh, my parents are both Texans, uh, like a lot of African-Americans. Uh, most of us have roots somewhere in the South. Uh, my father was a, a military guy. He was in the Marines. Uh, and when he got out of the Marines, he and my mother uh, lived in Los Angeles for a bit and then found an opportunity to purchase their first home. <clears throat> and Compton was one of the first places really in America, but particularly in the Los Angeles County area that allowed black folks to buy homes. Uh, most of us are somewhat familiar with the concept of redlining. Uh, Compton was one of the few areas where they, they really had cracked down on redlining. So my parents bought uh, our house at 2118 uh, 153rd Street um, in 1956, I believe. I was born January 9th, 1957. So 
Uh, I was raised in Compton, um, and your know, earliest memories uh, was kind of your classic row houses. Uh, you know, when you're a kid, you don't have really a concept of different sort of income stratosphere. So uh, everybody seemed the same to me. But if I were to describe it, I would say it was a working class, working middle class community. Um, you know, everybody cut their lawns on Saturdays. Uh, and, but it was mostly a white neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And, um, and again, I think one of the beauties of children was like, I don't know if they really meant anything to me at two, three, four, five years old. Um, but over time, Compton uh, was attracting more and more African Americans. Uh, at some point, it became recognized as what they call a model city. Uh, that was a, a, a federal program where they were trying to pump money into communities that might attract more African Americans. And uh, so Compton had some glory years. Um, I think I shared with you in 19. 19- mid-50s, uh, just to give some context, uh, one of its more famous residents was George Herbert Walker Bush. Uh, wow. He had a home in Compton for a number of years. And and again, further context is what you have to understand in the early and mid-50s, Compton was really dominated by oil derricks and dairies. <laughs> and as most of you probably know, the Bush family is a bit involved in and ranching and, and oil. So oil. Um, so yeah, I grew up in Compton and had a wonderful education there and, you know, life was good, but the mid sixties all over the country, there was a bit of turbulence. Uh, Compton did not escape that. Uh, you started having a bit more unrest and I'd say late sixties, early seventies, you saw this explosion of gang activity. And Compton started making a sea change, if you will, from what had previously been a predominantly white community to a predominantly black community. Uh, and it was that way for probably 8, 12 years or something like that. Uh, I'd say from the late 60s to the late 70s, maybe early 80s. Uh, and then it had another CTA. And if you went to Compton today, you would notice that Compton is predominantly Latino. Yeah. Um, so it is interesting that I think most people's perception of Compton is that it is this lone standing black community and, uh, you know, other perceptions that would suggest that, uh, there was a lot of violence and poverty and so forth. And yes, there was a window of that, but there was also a window of time in which Compton really was a wonderful little community to grow up in. That's so amazing. And I think uh, a lot of people are surprised to think that a place like Los Angeles would have redlining and segregated neighborhoods. Uh, There's a great movie called The Banker uh, with Mm -hmm. Samuel uh, J. Jackson, right? Samuel Jackson, yeah. Yeah. And that is like, that's based on a true story. And and so if you want to learn more about that, it's it's a I highly recommend that movie. Um, I imagine moving into that neighborhood and then um, you went on to college eventually, but you toyed with going to a boarding school. So again, your parents were were thinking ahead um, right. and and trying to give you opportunities uh, that maybe other parents weren't thinking about. 
Um, so can you tell me a little bit about that, going to this boarding school with a whole bunch yeah. of – maybe a whole bunch of white guys? That <laughs> yeah, sure. And I'll, and I'll drop some breaking news on you in the process. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, you know, uh, as I say, Compton was fine. Uh, late 60s, early 70s, it definitely was, it was shifting. Um, more gang activity, just some challenges. Uh, from a social standpoint. And uh, I had grown up in a family that pretty much sort of embedded in my thinking, you are going to college. And so I was okay with that. It's, the problem was I was also a teenager at some point, right. And I didn't really understand how do you get into college? Uh, you know, what is that about? Uh, both of my parents had some college, but uh, neither of them completed it. I had an older sister who eventually went to college. But I still, you know, I was a typical teenager. I was running around doing whatever I was doing and starting getting a little nervous because of like, I don't know how you actually get into college. And I think all the adults around me think I know. Right. And so <laughs> one day my mother comes home from work and, and says, this family friend of ours uh, knew of some private boarding preparatory colleges on the central coast of California, Santa Barbara area, and thought that I would be a good candidate for one of those schools and asked me if I would be interested in attending. And I was, well, for me, the answer was easy because it was like, that would solve this problem about how do you get into college? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I didn't know a lot about those type of schools, uh, but my, my stereotype of those schools was that it was predominantly white kids who wore nice little blue blazers and khakis and uh, school logo ties. And uh, they all go to college. So right. I'm like, yeah, count me in. Count me in. That way I don't have to really worry about this this thing. And I, you know, and I, I like clothes. I could do the blazer thing. I'm like, I could do that. <laughs> and so uh, the friend takes us up the coast to look at three schools. Beautiful drive. If you've ever been up the coast of uh, in Santa Barbara, it's just it's a beautiful yeah, drive. Gorgeous, so, gorgeous. You know, I was like, oh, this is nice. And so we get to the Dunn School, and the, the folks started coming out, and I was like, wow, all look like hippies, and you know, <laughs> torn up jeans and raggedy shirts and long hair. That's Uh-oh. the teachers. Oh, that's the te- the riffraff. <laughs> <laughs> then I saw and met some of the students. I was like, where's the money? I mean, I thought this was like a rich school and some ivy on the walls. I don't see right. any blue blazers. I don't see any khakis. Uh, so I was pretty much convinced within the first 20 minutes, I'm not doing this. Uh, it's too much dirt, too many hippies, and... Clearly, I, I saw the wrong movie because this doesn't look like anything that I thought it was supposed to look like. Uh, but I went through the process. I took their exam. I did all that stuff. And, uh, you know, we got in the car. We were supposed to go to the next school. And I told my mother and, and the guy who drove us up there, I was like, yeah, I don't think I really need to do that. I've seen one, seen them all. I think I got the picture. I'm not going. I'll figure it out from Compton. Uh, but on the drive home, I started reading through the brochures and they had profiles or short bios on all the teachers that I had met while I was at Dunn. 
And I was shocked to find out, you know, Steve Gill, UC Berkeley, Nick Thatcher, Yale University, Sue Thompson, Yale University, Bill Webb, who was the head of school, Princeton University. Uh, and the guy who interviewed me, who I really thought was just like the scariest guy on the planet. <laughs> Uh, he was an English guy, very soft-spoken, who taught French, really long, scraggly hair. with 110 degrees. He had a turtleneck sweater on. I could tell he was a chain smoker. And I'm like, I really don't have anything to do with this guy. This guy went to Oxford. And I'm like, wow. wow. Uh, that surprised me. And I was like, okay. So then I read the second brochure. And that brochure said 98% of the kids who graduate from Dime matriculate into their freshman year of college. The other 2% take a sabbatical before they go to college. Now, I didn't know what matriculate was, and I didn't know what sabbatical was. But I asked the guy who drove me, he said, matriculate means they enter their freshman year. Sabbatical means they go to England, they go to Europe before they start their freshman I'm like, okay, I got it. 98 plus 2 equals 100%. Maybe I'll try this. And uh, that was the beginning of it in the fall of 1973. Wow. Well, you know, I think for me, the biggest takeaway of that, of all of it is the fact that you were willing to ask questions because you could have just stopped with matriculate and sabbatical (laughs) and said, I'm done. Right. Right. right, right. But you did the math. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) And uh, took you forward. It took you forward. Numbers was in my future, Bob. It was in your future, and it's <laughs> and it's in your present. <laughs> it's in my present. That's right. Well, now, so you ended up, so you you went on to college. You studied economics, black studies, and political science. I was also right. a political science major, nice. planning on going to law school, and I didn't like any of the lawyers that I met. So I, <laughs> I too had numbers in my future. Um, right. How did going to Dunn and and going off to college? you know, shape your future? Did, and did you notice a difference? Um, you know, being a person of color, there might've been a few more obstacles, I'm guessing. One or two. <laughs> yeah. So, so I was, I was blessed with really a strong family unit uh, and uh, credit a lot of adults, both my mother and father, but especially my mother. My mother just was, she was amazing. Uh, and my parents got divorced when I was 10, but I've, I never spent a Christmas without both my parents at Christmas, right? So they were focused on their children and family and so forth and so on. Uh, so my, my foundation was really strong. Uh, as I mentioned that piece earlier about, uh, you know, as a kid, you don't really know, like these people are rich and these people are poor and these people are, you don't really know that. You don't really think about that a lot. Yeah. But you are being indoctrinated a bit. Right. Uh, if I would have guessed as a seven-year-old, I would have guessed we were rich. Uh, I think when I became an adult and started looking back and started trying to figure out the numbers, I was like, well, we definitely weren't rich. <laughs> right. Uh, but I, my environment was such that, um, if I can, I, I give you a real short antidote. Uh, when my parents were still married, uh, we used to have Sunday dinner, which that kind of speaks to something in and of itself. It was like, yeah. 
you know, that's probably not something typically that a lot of families get to experience. But we'd have Sunday dinner. It was pretty formal. We'd, we'd sit down. Uh, my mother would do this uh, foreign night every Sunday. Oh, my God. And, we might have had the same mom. This is crazy. Yeah, yeah go ahead. <laughs> right? And so when I was actually in my teenage years, I couldn't tell if I had traveled or not. I mean, I honestly thought I had been to Europe and been some places when I was a little kid. But what it was is, like, my mother would do French night. And, you know, dinner would start at 6 o'clock, and you come to the table, and the tablecloth would be in, in the French flag color, and there'd be French flags on it, and, you know, it was going to be Crepe Suzette or something. Yeah. And my mother might have known four words of French, and you were going to hear that throughout the entire dinner. That's awesome. Right? That's awesome. And she would, you know, basically force all of us, whatever you know about France, that's the conversation tonight. And some other night, it might be some country in Africa. Some other night, it would be England. Um, but so I had this really rich foundation. Yep. When I got to Dunn, one of the things that was a bit of a struggle for me was other people's perceptions about how black people are supposed to be. Right. Right. So Dan had formal dinner. I knew the difference between a solid fork and a dinner fork. Uh, but I had somebody ask me, how did you know that was a solid fork? And I was like, how did you know it was a solid fork? Right. I mean, so there, there were those type of things where, I think, and again, I was a teenager, so you know, you got a bunch of stuff going on there, so right? I, right. Um, uh, things like, and this is fairly common. I think some of your listeners, particularly if they're African American, will relate to this. Things like getting your hair cut. When you're not in a black community, it just becomes like a Herculean effort to find <laughs> where where can I go get my hair cut. Right. Right. And you'll have the, you know, the adults around who, who don't really understand the question, like, oh, you know, we can take you down to Joe. And you walk into Joe's barbershop and Joe's like looking at you like, <laughs> I can't help <laughs> you. Know, you. <laughs> how can I help you? And, you know, and keep in mind, this is the 70s. So, yeah. you know, wearing my hair natural or afros, as they call them sometimes, like the barber didn't know what to do with it. I needed right. a black barber. And I'm in, you know the area, Bob. I'm in San Inez, California. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, so I had to take a trip back to Compton just to get my hair cut. <laughs> uh, so those things were challenges. Uh, when I look back on it, good for me, good for the people around me, because I think folks learned. And that was, um, I didn't have a self-esteem problem. Let's put it that way. That's awesome. Uh, you know, and so I think they've probably found me fairly challenging, fairly clear about my beliefs about certain things. I learned to be a bit more open to new things in the sense that, uh, you know, I think there was a tendency to sort of push back a lot when I first got there, just because it's like, why do I need to conform to something else? Yeah. And, um, you know, so I think I discovered the, the, the best versions of me in those years. 
Uh, I did not really become who I am because I went to Dunn. You know, I think that's one of the things I share with people is like, I do feel fortunate and in some ways privileged to have had the parents that I had. Yeah. They instilled a bunch of like really good stuff in me uh, in spite of not really having the resources that I mean, you know, I, one of my examples is, you know, I was on scholarship at that. And so there were often the, the full paid kids and the scholarship kids. Well, you can kind of hear that that sort of has somewhat of an implication. Right. Uh, my attitude when I was at Dunn, as I recall, was they need me so badly they're willing to pay. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> right. I didn't I didn't really think in terms of, oh, this poor kid. It's like, what do you mean this poor kid? And it, and I, I don't think my parents sort of misled me in a way of like, you know, hey, we can write a blank check. No. I mean we had a sense of like, look, if we buy you something, you better take care of it. Right. And so I left Dunn. I went to Vassar College uh, in uh, upstate New York. Um, didn't realize the history that I was making. Uh, when I got to Vassar, I think it had, you know, it was one of the seven sisters that uh, uh, had only admitted men, I want to say maybe 10 years before I got there. Mm. And, uh, and it was good. It had a great experience, but I was there for about, you know, a year and a few months when I decided I'm kind of done with school for a bit and left and came home and started working and, and helping out at home a bit more. Uh, really was somewhat derailed, Bob, in the sense that, uh, you know, what seemed like a lot of money to me, and I think I was starting to focus a bit more on material stuff. Mm-hmm. Um First of all, it, it wasn't, you know, you're not making that much money. You're making a lot of money for a 20-year-old. Right. <laughs> but, you know, relative to kind of like what's in store for you for life, you do not have a college degree, and you're going to find out that that has implications. Like, right? Again, my mother would say, listen, your choice. You don't have to finish college. You don't have to do any of that. Your choice, but choices have consequences. Awesome. And so uh, I, I worked for a few years, and then I went to what would have been my graduation from Bowser. Okay. And saw all my buddies graduate. And then I went across the highway to watch my best friend from Dunn graduate from Princeton. Wow. And I came home and submitted my two-week resignation and got myself back in school yeah. And uh, and then really went the route that you went. I, I really was on track to do the CPA piece and, and uh, ultimately became a private accountant. Mm-hmm. Did that for a number of years and then uh, 30 years ago started this financial services business. And do you would you say that the reason you got into the financial advising piece um, – I mean, accounting is great. Uh, you know, I've got a great tra- uh, tax practice. I love what I do and I love working with clients. Private accounting, maybe not so much. I didn't feel like I could make a difference. Um, but in, in, in the role that you play now, you're helping people set goals, life goals, uh, and, and, and really actually changing their lives. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know, so I'm a spiritual guy. Um, as I, as I get older, I've learned to listen uh, to my source better. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoy being an accountant. And, and quite frankly, my accounting background helps me tremendously. I think just in terms of how I'm going to say we think. I mean, you, you think about things not only in your accounting practice, but you think about things in life differently than how other people think about stuff. And a lot of that has to do with your training as an accountant. Yeah. Uh, and I think I'm the same way. I mean, I, I like figuring things out. I process things in a, in a, in a way that I think my training as an accountant helped me. Uh, but when I came into this business, quite honestly, but, uh, I was, uh, I had had a few accounting gigs. Uh, I was at the time a senior accountant for the largest hospital here in the area. Uh, my immediate supervisor was two years younger than me. The CFO was probably four years older than me. Mm-hmm. And I'm in my late twenties, early thirties. And I had a, uh, I have my review and my supervisor is really sort of complaining to me about uh, stuff that I don't really understand what he's complaining about. And so I'm like, so you're not happy with my work performance. No, your work performance is fine. Some, 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 no, that's fine. I'm like, well, I, this feels like a negative interview or a review, mm-hmm. but you're telling me my work is fine. And what it was is that I was very social. I was very, so I volunteered a lot at the hospital. And, uh, you know, they had a lot of fundraising efforts. I volunteered. So I was, I was very active at the hospital and I was going to a lot of things. And I'm probably 28, 29 or something. Um, but all the sort of the big high ticket events that the hospital's having, I'm going to all those things. Of course, I'm not paying for anything because I was a volunteer and mm-hmm. my, my supervisor didn't do any of that stuff. So he was never invited to the stuff. And, I, and at some point I realized he's upset because I have relationships with a lot of people in the hospital, including upper management. Um, you know, and so it has nothing to do with my work performance. It says, and I have to listen to it because he's my supervisor. Right. I go back to my office and I'm sitting there, and I and I ask, I say, like, is this going to have some impact on my my bonus or my raise? Or he's like, no, but I'm just telling you. And he's, I'm like, okay. So I go back to my office, and I'm like, I was dreaming of becoming the CFO of that hospital, and I'm like, this dude is two years younger than me, which means, and he's my supervisor, so right. he's going to become CFO before I become CFO. And the woman who's the CFO, who I, I like to learn a lot from, she's only four years older than me. It's going to be a while. She's not going anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I, and I'm thinking, I just had this, this review that was like terrible, right? I mean, yeah. I just, most of it had to do with, I don't mind criticism, but it's like, I just felt like I got run, gone through the ringer. Yeah. On, and then I say, you know what? I'm out. Uh, I, I'm not going to do this for, you know, I'm 
28, 29. I'm like, I'm not going to do this for 30 years. Um, and so I have shared with young people that I've mentored over the years. That was like the most liberating day up to that point in my life that I can think of. Meaning it wasn't the fact that I was leaving tomorrow. It was the fact that I made the decision with clarity. This is not where I need to be. Yeah. And so I started looking. I'm like, you know, and I'm looking all over the place. I'm looking at, uh, I like restaurants. So I'm like, maybe I'll open a restaurant because uh, I like hospitality. Maybe I'll open a haberdashery because I like fashion. and You know, I, I like the messaging I can do through that. Maybe I'll open up a tax service. Right. Uh, you know, I have this accounting background. I could do that. And started making my calls to people, you know, my people in my influential circle. One of the people that I call, and, and I, I'm going to do this because it'll become a recurring thing for our conversation. One of the people that I called was a guy who was probably 10 years older than me, CPA, a done graduate. So I'd gone to that same private boarding school and was working for New York Life. Okay. And I call him and he says, you should go talk to the manager at New York Life. And I'm like, Rick, I like you <laughs> and I respect you, man. But I have like zero interest in that. And, uh, and it, it was kind of funny because he was, you know, I'm an accountant, but he's a CPA. And, you know, for those who don't know, there is a distinction, right? Yeah. I mean, you can be a great accountant. And it's just there's a distinction. Yeah. And I'm like, Rick's a CPA and it's somebody I really respect professionally as well as personally. So why am I sort of looking at him sideways about this insurance thing? Because it's like, because I don't want to sell anything. And he says to me, he's like, well, he's like, even if you don't want to go to work with them, the manager knows everybody in town. And he's really a nice guy. You should go meet him just, you know, to, to uh, expand your network. So I go meet with this guy. And I'm, I'm a bit smug because I'm like, I know you want to sell me on coming to work for you. It ain't happening. Right. Right. Uh, it took me out to a really nice lunch and so forth and so on. And I was like, okay, well, thanks a lot. He said, you know, I really liked you. You should come back next week. I'd like to talk to you. I said, look, uh, I'm just being upfront with you. I'm not interested in coming and being involved with, with the insurance business that way. And uh, he's like, well, that's fine. He's like, uh, I still like to take your lunch. I said, if you're buying, I'll show up. <laughs> That went on for eight months. Wow. And somewhere in there, I started hearing things that appealed to me like, you know, if you're working in this area of the business, you still get to review balance sheets and financials. And, and I'm like, oh, I like that. That sounds and, good. <laughs> yeah. And he started talking about, you know, you, you sound like you're a social guy. And so all those things appealed to me. I just didn't really understand. I didn't understand what do these products have to do with anything? And I, and whatever my perception was about salespeople, I'm like, you know, I, I, that's not really appealing. Well, the bottom line is eight months have gone by. I'm still at the hospital. I'm like, and I had a little bit of money in the bank. I'm like, well, why don't you go do this? 
they had uh, some sort of executive training program. I was like, why don't you go do that while you're trying to figure out where you're really going to go? And, <laughs> and so the day I signed my contract, uh, I'm, I'm filling it out. I'm looking out of his big picture window. I'm like, man, it looks like it's going to be a storm outside. We wrap up. I go outside at 5 o'clock. We open the door. It's not a storm. It's hot as blazes. There was something up here called the Painted Cave Fire back in 1990. Okay. That wasn't rain clouds. That was smoke wow. from all over. And to make a long story short, my house got burned to the ground. Oh, wow. Uh, we had just negotiated to buy a house in San Ynez. That house wasn't going to be ready for five weeks. We were homeless for five weeks. I lived in five different homes, me and my two children and my mother and wife. Lived in five different homes over that five-week period. <laughs> all five, you asked me how Ben and so where it impacted. All five of those places that I lived was somebody who was connected to Ben, wow. including this guy, Rick Banks, who referred me over to New York Life. Uh, stayed at his home, stayed on Dunn's campus and faculty homes, stayed at the business manager's home. You know, so when I think about it, and this kind of goes back to the spirituality, it's like sometimes just be quiet and listen. You know, you get placed in places, you meet people that you don't know what impact they're going to have in your life, what they're going to mean in your life. So, uh, yeah, I got a great education at Dunn, but it's much broader than just the academic. Yeah. Well, it sounds like relationships are an important component in all of that you've discussed. It's, it's really about the relationships um, and uh, being willing to listen and being willing to hear opportunities that are presenting themselves. Yeah, I, I would agree. And I what, think at the end of the day, that's all you really have. Yeah. And what do you want your what would you want your footprint to be? Um, what do you want your legacy to be in the work that you do uh, for your children? Like, what do, what do you want to bring? I know you're doing this work with endowment and, and we'll mm-hmm. mention that real, in just a second, but. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, some variation of it, Bob, is I, I feel like my calling is, helping people be the best versions of themselves yeah. that they can be. Yeah. Uh, and I do think of it as a calling. And I, I think we are a, a fractured nation right now. Yes. I think there's a lot of pain out there. Uh, I think, you know, again, I think I've been blessed with being in a wide range of situations and I've no, I know a wide range of people and it's never a hundred percent of what it appears to be. Yeah. Right. Uh, so while I can tell you that politically, I'm not a supporter of the current president. I don't wish any ill upon him. Right. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I really recognize how much of a damaged person he is. Uh, so I have a level of empathy for him, even as I criticize him. Right. Uh, and uh, I would wish for him that he could be the best version of 
whatever potential was or still even at 74 is in there. Yeah. Um, and I try to model that. And I, you know, I have two children and, you know, I've tried to sort of pass that to them and encourage them to do the same thing. Uh, in my practice, one of the things that we talk about is obviously the name of my company is Wealth Management Strategies. We help try to define true, sustainable generational wealth for people. Mm-hmm. And we describe it as three pillars, cultural wealth, community wealth, and lastly, economic or capital wealth. Yeah. But if you don't have the first two, the third one doesn't do you any good. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, I could sit here and talk to you for a couple more hours. <laughs> I know we have to start to come to the end here. Where can people, uh, where can people find you on social media or your website uh, for people that want to be the best version of themselves and they're looking for a little bit of assistance and knowing that there's some groundedness and spirituality? Where, where can people find you? Yeah, so a couple of places. One, the, the first is when my, my office number is 805-693-1773. My website is www.wealthmgt, short for management, strategies.com. You can email me at guy at wealthmgtstrategies.com. Uh, or you can call Bob, and Bob will tell you where to reach me. I will definitely do that. <laughs> and how can we help support Endowment for Youth Committee? Oh, thank you so much for that question. So Endowment for Youth Committee uh, is a small nonprofit in Santa Barbara County. It's 34 years old. Uh, really started by some wonderful people because uh, they were living in the Lower East Side, which Essentially, means sort of the poor area of, of Santa Barbara. And yes, there are areas <laughs> in Santa Barbara. <laughs> yeah. By anybody's standards, would yeah. be considered poor. And, uh, you know, similar to my story about Compton, where there was, there was a window of time in which uh, the drugs was becoming an issue. Kids were not going to, to uh, pass secondary school. And so these folks started it really to be a safe haven and, and create some opportunities. Fast forward, uh, you know, 25, 26 years later, they had somewhat fallen a bit on hard times just in terms of, you know, demographics have changed and board members have changed. And it was a bit dormant. I got asked to come in and see if we could sort of resurrect it, uh, which we did back in 2015. And uh, I, so I call it Endowment for Youth Committee 2.0. Uh, <laughs> the relaunch. You know, it's, we're doing some of the same things that we were doing 34 years ago. But the reality is we are an organization that advocates for uh, young African-American students. Um, we are providing some enrichment opportunities culturally, socially. Uh, we are trying to ensure that that population of kids understands that, uh, first of all, I would just say, and this is a bias of mine, for the most part, uh, especially for students of color, but I would say this for anybody, but 
especially for students of color, you should get at least a bachelor's degree. Uh, it, it, to me, it's almost like the new high school diploma. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and if you're not doing that, then talk to somebody about uh, whether it's a trade or community college, but you cannot stop at high school. Uh, that's kind of the big message. And certainly we want to see more go on to four-year schools and graduate schools. And so we're just, we're doing a lot uh, in terms of encouraging, advocating, running programs uh, with young people to ensure that that happens. How people can help is a variety of ways. Certainly if you have some exposure opportunities that are, that are culturally, socially relevant, that is helpful. If you have professional opportunities uh, where we can uh, expose young people to your profession, that's helpful. And then lastly, the, certainly the most obvious is we are always happy to take financial contributions. Um, again, we have over the years been blessed to build a permanent endowment. We're trying to build upon that. We have lots of partners that we're working with. And uh, if you want to know more about endowment for youth, those same numbers that I gave you, um, you can reach reach you can reach me through that, and I can connect you more and down for you. Awesome, and we'll put some of that into our social media and all that, so we can let people know. Um, yeah. It's been awesome having you here. I want to say to our listeners, um, real quick, to uh, not forget to share the love. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search for money you can. Money You Should Ask, all one word. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. And if you prefer to watch our episodes, you can head over to YouTube and subscribe to our channel. Guy, it has been awesome having you on here. I so appreciate what you shared. Um, I'd love to talk for more hours, but uh, they limit me. Um, Offline. Offline, we'll do that. That sounds great. I look forward to doing more stuff together and uh, I just wish you the best. And I uh, really want to also shout out to um, the EYC that we really help support them as well. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks, Bob.